You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. My guest today is Sam Lamson, Vice President of Interoperability at Oracle Cerner. Sam calls himself a technologist at heart, as well as an evangelist for all things interoperability. And he talks with us about how his personal and professional experiences have led him to this place. As some of our other guests have shared, the experiences they have while growing up often strongly influence the career a guest ultimately pursues. And for Sam, that's true in a pretty unique way. Sam's dad worked in tech and manufacturing and moved the entire family to Hong Kong just as Sam entered high school. Sam called his time in Hong Kong life-changing. It's where he learned to play rugby and started a punk rock band. It's also where he learned about the power of diplomacy and experienced firsthand the difficulties in staying connected without the help of technology. Sam joined Oracle Cerner in 2015 and did a short stint at Intermountain Healthcare, which included helping stand up their COVID incident command center. Now back at Oracle Cerner, he says the unaffordability of healthcare is a uniquely American problem that requires a uniquely American and innovative solution. And his goal is to make care more affordable, accessible, and better coordinated. I'm so excited to talk with Sam and dig deeper into his remarkable career and learn what inspires him and has catapulted him into such a critical and exciting role. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Melanie. It's very nice to be here with you. You're doing great things in leading interoperability for Oracle Cerner, and I definitely want to spend some good time there. But let's start by going way back, way back to where you grew up. How did you get started? Yeah, sure. I was actually born in the West in Salt Lake, and when I was really young, moved to Arizona. So I really consider Gilbert, Arizona, my home. When I was 14, just about to turn 14, my family it was actually the first airplane ride I ever took was to move with my family to Hong Kong. That was a pretty important part of my my youth was leaving kind of the, the comforts of suburban America and living in a very large city. That was where I, I feel like I really learned a lot. It was probably the most formidable time of my life. So Hong Kong, growing up in Hong Kong, what an experience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? My dad worked in technology and manufacturing. He made machines that make computer chips. They had factories all over Asia. So he opened up an Asian headquarters in Hong Kong. And during that time, one of the things that I I really gravitated towards, because I did like to play football and basketball and other American sports in the States, was, was the game of rugby. Being a British colony, there was cricket, there was rugby, there was field hockey, and a lot of British sports. And all the high schools had rugby teams, and there was an international rugby scene. Uh, they host a very big tournament once a year there. And and so rugby was big. Um, and I played on the under-16s national team and the under-19s under national team uh, during my time there. And so got to represent Hong Kong 
uh, all over Southeast Asia and travel around and play against Sri Lanka and Malaysia and you know Taiwan and and visit these places and participate in the tournaments. So that being kind of that that uh, representative of your home town or your home country really was part of like my identity. And from there, I really always look for opportunities to be kind of in that intermediate space between like your home and, and, and another place. So I really was interested in diplomacy and, and becoming an ambassador when I was a kid, like that was my dream. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And interoperability, there's certainly a good amount of diplomacy to throw in. So we'll talk about that. So did you always want to be in healthcare? I don't think so. I always wanted to kind of be in, I gravitated towards business, but I think healthcare came as a necessity, but I graduated uh, during the Great Recession, like right at the front end of the Great Recession. And during that time, I was gunning for financial services. I had done internships with an audit with KPMG and then with financial software with uh, a company called Capital Group that runs the American funds. And I was very interested in financial information systems everything collapsed. Like the, the stock market lost a third of its value. All jobs that had been extended to kids in my class were reneged. All that was left really was, you know, EMR companies were hiring. There was some health IT and health consulting ecosystem was still kind of recession proof at that time. And so I started my career at, fortunately, I mean, found a wonderful company. At the time they were called StockAmp and, and since were acquired by Huron Consulting Group. Um, but I worked out of their Portland, Oregon office, and we consulted in revenue cycle with the largest health systems in the country. So I got to get very you know, familiar with the likes of Intermountain Healthcare and partners in Boston and UCLA. And we had some really marquee clients and knowing the inner workings of how their revenue cycle functioned and having you know, the core systems that would drive workflow uh, was kind of those early learnings of my career that that really shaped, I think, the trajectory of, of, of where I ended up. Wow. So the recession drove you to healthcare. And now, really, I, I, I note that a little research on you shows that in your LinkedIn profile, there's a very simple statement, make care more affordable, accessible, and better coordinated. I love it. So talk to me about that. Like, has that been a guiding light for you in your healthcare career? I think each of those have been, I could point to maybe specific times where I, I came to each of those elements. You know, affordability ends up being like this recurring theme as you learn more about global healthcare and the OECD studies and things that, that demonstrate that the U.S. has the highest per capita expense in healthcare. And as you understand how the revenue cycle works and the waste in administrative burden and then you see the burnout on the clinician side, you realize like the affordability problem is a uniquely American problem. I mean, it's, it's bad everywhere else, but in the U.S., it's particularly driven by just misaligned incentives. And I, I just think inefficiencies in the way we the way we think about healthcare and deliver it. So affordability is just something I think we can all tackle and all take on. And just as it's a uniquely American problem, I think we can come up with uniquely American solutions that bring kind of the same innovation that drives us in so many other sectors, especially around technology. Right. Absolutely. Scaling it is so key. It's so 
different when we talk to the technologists, we're talking about scaling. When we talk to the clinicians, we're talking about one-to-one um, and then put it together and you get something pretty special. So when you were first at Cerner and you took this technology work to Cerner, you've talked about working, I think, on their app store, early app store. Can you talk about that? My first job out of my MBA was to come work at Cerner at a time when APIs and open APIs specifically, like the the APIs you could expose to third-party developers were becoming more pervasive, not just in healthcare, but but I think there were other examples that were more, more relevant. And kind of looking at these models emerge in other other industries, and even what was happening in in the EHR industry, uh, I was tasked with the the responsibility of coming up with how Cerner going to enter this market and expose its open APIs, which at the time were we were the first in really adopting Fire as a standard. And I think now, I, last time I looked, I think we had something like 180 apps kind of up and running within our program and many, many more uh, implementing every quarter. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really emerged as, a, as, a, as an, a meaningful and important part of our product strategy and something that I think even as we look forward beyond 21st century cures and more APIs coming on board, it'll be more and more an important part of the EHR ecosystem. So you've been with Cerner since around 2015, right? And you did a brief interlude at Intermountain Healthcare. What what was that like? You went to the provider side, and I'm sure you brought some of your health IT know-how to the provider side. What was that like? What I really enjoyed about going to Intermountain was the vision of Intermountain is just so large. They are a, a health system, not, not-for-profit health system in Utah, have a very large share of the Utah health market, and, and as a result, have, have actually made health rather affordable and high quality in the state of Utah. Um, and, and their ambition was to really like bring that, uh, you know, continue to focus on that and then bring that beyond. And part of that was their health IT strategy. Like they have a very long history of being kind of players in the, in the homegrown health IT space. And they partnered with Cerner to kind of take them to the next level, created a strategic alliance. Part of that strategic alliance included this very unique role where you know, Cerner would basically place an executive inside the leadership ranks of Intermountain Healthcare for a period of like an undefined period of time. When it was time to pull the trigger on that, I put my head, my, you know, my hat in the ring and they're like, all right, come out to Utah. So I relocated my, my whole life to Salt Lake City, started working for Intermountain as part of a strategic alliance. But the work was really with the health system on kind of health system strategy, especially around physician, the physician group and kind of physician engagement, physician leadership development, compensation, things that were really on the horizon in in terms of driving from a fee-for-service world to a a fee-for-value kind of population health mentality. I did that for two years as part of the Cerner Intermountain uh, combined team, and then ultimately uh, was having such a great time working at Intermountain that i decided to make the plunge and, and fully rebadge and become an Intermountain leader. And then ultimately COVID hit, changed everyone's jobs. I ultimately became responsible for running a, a incident response center, incident command center for the, for the community-based care assets. Every day, we did a broadcast every day, updating people on you know where we are with COVID, 
it was just grueling. We made hundreds of decisions a day. You know, we, we ran 22 testing centers, a call center with like 200 call center agents, um, all kind of created overnight. But I was so far away from technology at that point <laughs> that I said, you know, it, it's time to go go back, uh, go back to solving the problems at scale. And I found a good opportunity back at Cerner in interoperability. And that's how I ended up back here. Wow. So let's just talk for a few minutes about the COVID experience, because there are just so many stories out there in healthcare. And I think all these stories just need to be told because we learned so much from them. So when COVID hit, talk about your experience, both personally and then at Intermountain. I actually did a, uh, a lecture at Cornell to the MHA students um, on like March 4th of 2020. And so I was on an airplane and I was still tuning into our daily briefs and things. And it became clear to me at that point that we were shutting down. You know, what's interesting is we're building this uh, command center, right? So we know we have to go to incident command. I was tasked with like, you, we need to create a structure for, for incident command. So I went and read a playbook on like, on how hospitals do their incident command procedures. And I applied that to ambulatory. And then we started outfitting a room at one of our training facilities with like monitors across the front. So we were, we were installing monitors on a wall, uh, putting different reports and analytics on ventilators, on capacity, on testing results. On, you know, so we had all the information in front of us. We had seats labeled with everybody's position. You know, you're gonna be in charge of operations, logistics, physician, nurse, you know, we had everybody kind of in their seat. So we set up this whole physical layout. And then we were like two days into this thing. And all of a sudden, everybody's house is like shaking early in the morning. There was a pretty good size earthquake in Salt Lake City that like just rattled everyone. My, We couldn't even stay in our house because it's a very old house and we were worried about structural damage. And then a couple of our clinics had the walls crack and the ceilings fall in, you know. And so we're in the incident command center for COVID trying to solve earthquake problems. And there's a gas plume, you know, that was floating over one of the cities in the community. I mean, it felt like the world was literally falling apart. And so we were all evacuated from the incident command center, standing in the parking lot while, you know, we're all on the phone trying to coordinate like earthquake and COVID challenges. Um, and then... Doctor, I think it was either Dr. Harrison or or Shannon Phillips or one of one of the one of the main physician leaders uh, finally called everyone together and was like, "Look, we're not going to work physically together anymore. <laughs> everyone just go home. We're working from home from now on." Um, and that was the last time we worked together a, as a group. Um, and I think it was like ten months later when I left Intermountain, but we worked every day from our basements uh, from that point forward. Oh my goodness, what a story. I did not realize or maybe didn't remember that how the earthquake hit at exactly the time that COVID was hitting. What how that must have felt, right? Just like the earth is ending, right? The world is ending. You know, I find it interesting too that you start your story about about bringing the the incident command center to bear you start it with all the technology that you have up, right? All of, of course, the technologist in you comes out and you're going to make sure that we've got all of the technology in place so you can see where everybody is at any one point in time. So I would imagine that from that experience, 
you've got a lot of learnings that you're bringing into technology. Going beyond COVID, COVID was a very trying time. I mean, it had people on edge and it really, especially for physicians, I mean, the, the volumes went down, which therefore translated into compensation, you know, issues and challenges with, with uh, you know, ensuring that everyone was solving, solving those problems. And then just like the, the psychological toll of the shifts and everything else. And then, and then the labor shortage that followed, right? These are factors that I think you know, sometimes when you work in the EMR world or the health IT world, you you think of burnout and you think of like, oh, it's the number of clicks in our EMR that are driving people crazy, which I think is about a third of the of the problem. But it's the other two thirds that I think that I, I, I learned to appreciate a lot better, which was the stress of the volumes that our clinicians have to you know work with in terms of just patients flowing through their, whether it's surgical or, or outpatient or, or behavioral health units. It's the social isolation, all of the factors that play into the reality of the clinician experience. I mean, the number of docs who said they would never become a doctor again if they had the choice, I mean, it's staggering. And so it's not just an EMR problem. It's like, if we can fix the EMR, it will alleviate a great deal of the problem, but it's it's a broader issue than that. And so as I think about the technologies we build, like I have a certain reverence for nurses and doctors and uh, PSRs, you know, the front desk staff, because, you know, those were the folks I was working with every day. And my mission now is ensuring that we are thinking about them when we build technology. You know, yeah, we do. We do definitely owe clinicians a debt of gratitude for the last few years and uh, owe them owe them the work to make their lives easier. So let's talk about your current role. You're the vice president of interoperability at Oracle Cerner. That's pretty impressive title. Interoperability is a big word. Can you just start by describing what does that mean and how, you know, how do you think of interoperability where you are? As a result of being abroad, I get to wear a couple of hats. And one of those hats is just being an evangelist for all things interoperability. So that big eye interoperability, meaning let's ensure that our systems work together and promote teamwork. Interoperability is a team sport. In terms of the business unit that I run and the people that that work in kind of the interoperability group, uh, they are focused on what I would call managed interoperability. So, you know, our clients have a lot of tools at their disposal to go connect outside systems, whether it's HL7 feeds or data feeds of any any variety. And they typically have a contingent of folks who can do projects and support various connectivity. But what we find is that there's occasionally a thing that every client is doing, trying to connect to. And at Oracle Cerner, I think we uniquely approach those problems and we say, how can we create like a hub that will connect every client that has the same challenge to the other side of that exchange? So whether it's provider to provider, you know, like we have, we, we manage our own direct HISP. That was one of those early things we saw, like how do we create a standard for Transit, transition to care and and push data. And, and, and so we created the, the Cerner HISP and, and uh, implemented Direct. We run a reference lab network. So a lot of all of the reference lab in the US are accessible to our clients through a single hub. So the other part of um, interoperability, the business that we run is to connect our, is really meant to connect our clients to common parties outside of their enterprise. And so 
we think about the common use cases that a client might have to um, address. And we say, how can we build a hub at the center that connects all of our clients at enterprise scale to some other outside entity? And, and the prime example is, uh, is pharmacy and, and how we connect our clients from, you know, from their EHR systems, their ordering systems. When they go and say, what pharmacy do you want to send your prescription to? We're, we're able to interface, you know, really everybody's activity into the pharmacies through a partnership with SureScripts. And we also are able to bring in things like price transparency and real-time benefits uh, and other things that are more advanced uh, applications into our prescribing workflows through kind of that single conduit. So it simplifies e-prescribing and kind of the things that clients have to connect to by having, you know, Cerner front all the complex connections. And then we partner with the likes of of SureScripts and others and other use cases uh, to to make those connections. And so it's not just e-prescribing, it's it's things like direct messages, payer interoperability. Uh, you, you go down the list, and you know, uh, reference labs, public health. Uh, these managed connections are really what the business is trying to drive. You know, Sam, as we talk about interoperability, is there maybe a story that you could tell that would bring this to life for listeners who may be thinking about, well, this is all nice to hear the technology behind it. But what does that mean for me if I'm a physician, if I'm a pharmacist, or if I'm a patient? Gosh, as much as we pride ourselves with the scale and kind of quality of interoperability that we've been able to achieve, I mean, we talk in terms of billions of transactions. I know SureScripts does the same. Like we are sending a lot of volume with high fidelity across a lot of technological pipes, but we still have a long way to go. And, and that that became extremely apparent to myself as relatively recently, you know, my, my wife had a major surgery during her recovery. She all of a sudden ran out of breath and collapsed on our stairs. We didn't know what was happening. And so I took her over to the clinic because as an Intermountain employee, I knew that we had some very sophisticated capabilities at our clinics in order to reduce, like we talked about at the beginning, like reduce the, uh, the cost of care and drive affordability, we offer things like MRIs and CAT scans and other things at the clinic. And I knew this was available. It's a very unique setup, but I went over there and I, and, and I got her a cat, a cat, a CT scan, and they found pulmonary embolisms in her, in her lungs. And that was a life or death kind of situation. We had a little bit of time, but it was like, it was a, it was an issue for various reasons. At that point, we really needed a next level of care. And our only option was to go to a, another health system at that point because we had clinic coverage where we didn't have hospital coverage. So we had to go and cross lines, right? And when we went up to this emergency room, as we were getting checked in, they had nothing in their record on my wife. They had to start from scratch. Now, I don't know where care quality and common law were. I don't know where all the things that we know exist exist but like for that doc and that nurse in that moment at that emergency room it wasn't there for them when they asked about the care that was received at the clinic we said we had a ct scan and we had a disc and we had a report and they're like oh well how did they do that they, you can't do a ct scan at a clinic like you can only do that in the hospital well, like that might be in your system but this other system doesn't and so we had to explain to them that it's possible and that we don't want another one. Like we got diagnosed and it would cost us thousands of dollars to do it at the emergency room. 
And so they had to go check with like other people. We can upload this into whatever and say and trust the diagnosis, but they had to like jump through all sorts of hoops. And so the experience overall, like ultimately she got excellent care, but there were breakdowns. And sometimes these data flows, getting data from point A to point B happens. Like what about from point B to the clinician with the right context and having the right data and not having to click into it? Like why wouldn't they use it? You know, going back to my original point, like this is very personal to me. I don't know what broke down there, but it's breaking down for people all over the country every day, all over the world every day. We're not where we need to be. And it's really the driving force I get up every morning um, to try to fix. Well, I'm really glad that she's okay and that those problems didn't impact the ultimate outcome, but they they are harrowing when they happen. So let's talk about data liquidity a little bit. You've been focused on data liquidity as part of the interoperability focus. And you've said that more data is not always better. How can we move from connectivity to true usability from your point of view and experience? I think data liquidity is something that we've championed for a very long time. I mean, even before I went to Intermount, we were we were talking a lot about how do we influence the 21st Century Cures Act and ensure that things like data blocking and other things are not an issue anymore. But that's one half of the coin. The other half of the coin is, okay, now that it's flowing, I am shocked at how much data is sent over and over and over again and is replicated and duplicated in the system and re-recorded and, and all of that. That's what's happening right now. So if you look at like the current state of interoperability, it's just a lot of the same data being passed around all over. And so to get from that interoperability to true usability, that is a process that I think is owned by the receiving system, right? So until we can fix the, the originating systems, we have to do something on the end of that pipe to bring all of that, to do that duplicated information, you know, comparing the quality of the sources and ensuring that the highest quality information is the one that gets the highest priority when coming into the system. All those smarts have to be built at the at the receiving end of this of, of interoperability. And so my my product team has been focused for a number of years, even before I got to Cerner, on a thing called seamless exchange. But its focus is really on when we receive and retrieve that information, how do we compare it to everything else out there and with what's in the chart? And when a physician or or other clinician is looking at it, all they see is what's different from what they have in their system and, and just get rid of all the noise. And, and even better than that, how can we take something that is different and it's from a source they're already trusting and writing in all the time and just have it auto write into the medical record. And then you just see everything in your, in your kind of standard workflow. Those are the fundamental principles uh, of seamless exchange and where we have, where we have it rolled out at, at a number of clients um, the, the user feedback has been tremendous, especially like nighttime nurses, overnight ICU nurses, pharmacists who have to do medical re- medication reconciliation. Like they're getting clean lists of pharmacy. They're getting clean lists of radiology reports and things like that. So this is a really powerful and I think innovative technology. Now, this isn't a published study or anything, but the number I will share with you is that like of all the data duplication and noise makes up over 99% of the data. So wow. we're not talking we're not talking about removing like a small portion. We're talking about the clinician should never see over 99% of that data. 
And it's that 1% that we, we all need to focus on to make sure it gets to the clinician at the right point. Okay. So that story makes me think about another experience that I've had just as a patient, you probably can relate to this too, going from provider to provider and getting a piece of paper every single time to write down the data that you know is already in their chart. So how do you make interoperability not only work for clinicians, but also work for patients? Just like a CCDA from University of Minnesota, uh, to be to be nice to you, it, it just, if it comes in, that there should be a similar pipeline for patient um, data, right? So, and it really shouldn't flow over any different process than what, what we just described, which is a patient has has submitted information. Should it be reviewed reviewed and reconciled, or should it be automatically written? And those should be kind of policies that are that are developed by by the health system that's the receiver. But the tools and the capabilities should really facilitate as much as possible automation in that process, so that you know you um, or me when we're doing our pre visit you know questionnaire or whatever it is, never have to have that hand over a piece of paper and then have the nurse put it in the system and then have someone else look at it, right? Six or seven steps every time you submit a piece of paper. And duplicate data every single time. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And just for our listeners out there, CCDA is in fact the patient's clinical history. So we've talked about that quite a bit. Want to make sure that gets out there. So what is interoperability's highest calling? How would you fold in equity and access into this? Really, you know, I, I think that interoperability and actually healthcare IT will be at its best when it is something that is owned by the patient and they have pretty much full control of their own record. Not everyone's an informaticist and wants to have that kind of responsibility. And so the tools have to be appropriate. But the more we can ensure that the record is patient centric, that it is manageable by the patient, that it is tied to their identity, that's consistent wherever they go. That I think is w- when we really unlock the potential of interoperability. Because as long as it's something that providers do alone and in isolation without patient in- involvement, the more of this duplication problem, the more we misidentify patients, the more we create uh, administrative burden and overhead in our, in our system, and there's more potential for medical error. I think our highest calling is to ensure that in a smart and intuitive way, we really support patients in having a complete record at the person level. So I always ask this question, and I just have to ask it of you. I, I ask, I, I'm fascinated with how people become inspired. And there's plenty of opportunity for inspiration when you're talking about clinical interoperability in healthcare. So Sam, how do you become inspired? For me, I feel like I have a number of sources of inspiration, I kind of go back to something that maybe is a little bit more, maybe less inspiring for others, but for me, it's a big point of inspiration, which is the ability to impact individuals at scale. One of the big reasons I stepped out of healthcare delivery and into technology is because I do have a lot of um, hope for what cloud computing and information systems can, can do over time. They always get better. They never get worse. They continue to improve and provide, you know, scale to, you know, you solve a problem and you just continue to solve, to solve more problems and expand their impact uh, across the globe. And 
you know, I know that's a very broad way of thinking about it, but what really inspires me is that we can do one thing and it can impact thousands of, or even hundreds of thousands of users for the better. At least I can know that at the end of the day, I'm helping people help um, others. And, uh, and that does bring me a lot of satisfaction. As a national healthcare leader, what keeps you up at night? Ah, boy, I think like everyone who sits on operational technology that's in the wild uh, is, you know, we have to have high reliability for our patients and providers. And so I have an operational thing that keeps me up at night. It's just like, can we just make sure that everything is rock solid and, and doesn't, there's no outages and no issues that, that interrupt patient care? That's something that definitely keeps me up at night. I think the other thing is just, you know, ensuring that, you know, the, the people and partners that we work with are doing their best and, and they're at their best. COVID has taken a toll on everybody, emotionally, physically, uh, and, you know, ensuring that there's a people side to everything that we do. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that, that really drives, gives me drive and, and, and keeps me up at night is just making sure that people are, you know, really at their best and performing without a lot of you know, burden and, and, and challenge in, the, in, their, in their lives. So there's just a couple of things that uh, pretty much constantly on my mind trying to, trying to work out ways to alleviate. Well, where do you see the biggest opportunities for innovation in healthcare? You know, I'm a data guy, right? So moving data is a big part of what I do, but I think there is a lot of opportunity with AI and machine learning, both to improve pay, the kind of the clinician and patient experience and kind of contextualizing the information they're getting, providing more rapid decision support, but also um, really bringing out the insights from the data that they're collecting passively. So, you know, lots of clinical processes built on very free text type entry. So we've done a lot with codified data in healthcare, right? We've got, we've got dropdowns and, and everything else, but like it's those, it's those free text uh, assessments and, and uh, histories that are that are written out in kind of the old format that I think have immense value, and with the right level of te- with that right application of technologies, can really work within the training of the clin- the clinicians um, to bring out like really relevant information and making it actionable for patients and providers alike. So the application of AI and ML goes way beyond the things that I can think of. You know, today, but I, I'm really excited about convened for clinicians and patients. Oh, that's great. It's an exciting time. And going back to what you said at the very beginning, obviously, interoperability is truly a team sport. So thank you very much for your leadership in this space and for the discussion today. Yeah, and thank you. And thanks to SureScripts. I mean, you're all very much, uh, you know, a partner in all of this. And we appreciate you and all of the alliance and the, and the folks that are involved in, in the SureScripts network. Thank you so much, Sam, for spending time with us and sharing your perspective as an interoperability evangelist. And why simply providing more interoperability is not always better. Data has got to be delivered and exchanged in a way that takes out as much noise as possible. Thank you too for sharing a very personal story, how a lack of interoperability impacted your wife in a harrowing way. 
I think I can speak for myself and all of our guests in saying that we are so very glad she has recovered. Yet too many of us have experienced similar mishaps. We can all understand why making interoperability work for both patients and providers is personal. I'm excited that we have a leader like you focused on the highest calling of interoperability to make it as patient-centric as possible. And I look forward to seeing how you help us pave the way to that brighter future. For those of you listening in, we hope you'll join us again. Upcoming episodes will feature a guest who calls herself an EHR cheerleader and how one national grocery pharmacy chain is delivering on whole patient care. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart Talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.